Welcome to Shorties, a short true crime story. Hello, happy Wednesday. Happy Wednesday. Okay, so the story I have today is a little bit different than what we normally do. It's very much like a campfire type story. Ooh, okay, so it's spooky. Yeah, it's spooky. So just pretend like you're sitting around a campfire right now. Okay, I like it. Do you? I like that. Do no. you? Oh, yeah. Do you like campfire stories? Like oh, I ghost- live for it. Oh, do you? Yeah, I've done it like twice in my life, but God, <laughs> did I love it. <laughs> I want more now. <laughs> I've done it twice, but I live for but it. But I live for it. <laughs> okay, so have you ever heard of the Bennington Triangle? No, I haven't. Okay, so it's it's basically Vermont's version of the Bermuda Triangle. So the tiny town of Glastonbury, Vermont, was a logging and mining town founded in the 1700s at the base of Glastonbury Mountain, which is in southern Vermont. But it was quite a tough area, so the town really struggled to settle in. By the late 1800s, the townspeople started giving up and moving to new areas. In 1897, a huge flood destroyed a lot of the entrances to the town, which aided in kind of depleting the population. By 1930, Glastonbury was a literal ghost town with only three people living there. And then in 1937, it was officially unincorporated. Legend has it that spirits and energies we can't comprehend are the reason that it was such a difficult place to settle in. The Native American tribes in the area considered it a cursed land, and they wouldn't step foot on it. They believed that at the top of the mountain, the four winds met above a boulder that when standing on it would swallow a person whole. Because of this, they would only brave the mountain to bury their dead. Despite its history, the residents of the nearby town of Bennington maintained that Glastonbury Mountain was a popular place to hunt, hike, and camp. But a lot of spooky shit has happened on that mountain, all of which can't be explained. There have been somewhere between 30 and 40 reports of people vanishing completely into thin air on the mountain. And obviously that's not unusual given that people go missing all the time when they decide to venture out into wilderness, you know. But there are five particular cases where people vanished on the mountain that I want to focus on. So our first disappearance occurred on Monday, November 12th, 1945. A group of hunters came to Glastonbury Mountain for a weekend hunting trip and enlisted the help of a 74-year-old man named Mitty Rivers to guide them. Mitty was a local, very experienced hunter himself who knew the whole area like the back of his hand. The group reported having a pretty normal hunting trip. There was nothing unusual taking place. And on the last day of their trip, they began making their way back towards the campsite. As they're walking along a hiking path known as the Long Trail, and getting pretty close to the site, the group notices that Mitty suddenly starts walking faster. He doesn't look back or say anything to them, and soon he's so far ahead of them, they don't even see him anymore. But they don't really think much of this, and they just continue on, assuming that Mitty is getting to the camp ahead of them to build a fire. But when they arrive at the camp a few moments later, Mitty isn't there. Not only is he not there, but there's no evidence anyone was there since earlier in the day when they'd left. And again, it's not totally concerning because Mitty was such an experienced hunter that they just kind of assume he's gone off for something, like maybe to relieve himself or to get more firewood or something like that. But after a couple of hours when he doesn't return, the group gets worried and sets out to search for him. 
They backtrack along the trail, but there's no sign of him. Mitty has completely vanished. After going to the nearest town for help, several search parties descend onto the area, but there's still no sign of Mitty. The only clue that they found was a singular bullet standing straight up on a boulder near a small stream. It was in the vicinity of the campsite, but it didn't really shed any light on where Mitty went and why and what happened to him after the group lost sight of him. And who's to say it was even connected to him? Mm -hmm. 77 years later, Mitty's fate remains a mystery. And the fact that he was the epitome of a skilled hunter and outdoorsman and also knew that area better than anyone makes it all the more baffling. Our second disappearance came on Sunday, December 1st, 1946. 12 months and 17 days after Mitty Rivers was last seen. 18-year-old Paula Jean Weldon was a student at Bennington College. She threw on a red winter coat and set out to walk along the hiking path known as the Long Trail. This particular day was quite busy on the trail. Several people remember seeing Paula, mostly because she was a pretty girl who smiled or waved as she passed you. And then, of course, because she was in this very striking red coat that obviously stood out against the backdrop of the path. At one point, Paula passed a man on the path and he stopped her to ask for directions. He'd gotten disoriented and he couldn't figure out which direction would take him back to his car. He later turned out to be a journalist at the local newspaper, the Bennington Banner. Paula pointed him in the right direction and continued her walk, which was in the opposite direction that she had sent him. So this means that she knew right where she was in which direction the parking area was. A few moments later, Paula passed an older couple on the path, walking in the same direction that she was. They nodded and said hello, and Paula continued walking and eventually got about 200 yards ahead of them. They said that her red jacket was so distinctive that she stuck out like a sore thumb. And because they were following in the same direction, they they were sort of just like watching her. <laughs> that You know, not yeah. in like a weird way, but she was just in front of them. There was a bend in the path, and for about two minutes after turning the corner, she was out of the couple's sight. However, when they rounded the corner, they were surprised to see that she was gone. This was especially odd because just after the bend, the path opened up significantly and the trees lining it weren't very dense at all. Yet the girl in the red coat was gone. It was so surprising that they immediately acknowledged it and then made it a point to look around for her, but they couldn't see her at all. No footprints, no noise, nothing. The following day, Paula is reported missing when she doesn't show up for class. Several search parties go out looking for her along the path that she was last seen, but they found nothing. 76 years later, Paula's fate is still unknown. Despite wearing a long red coat that stood out against the wilderness, no one found a single trace of her. Our third disappearance comes approximately three years later on the anniversary of Paula's disappearance. On Thursday, December 1st, 1949, a 56-year-old Army veteran named James Tetford boarded a bus in the town of St. Albans to make the journey back to Bennington, where he lived in a soldier's retirement home. He had been in St. Albans for a few days visiting family. This was something that he did a few times a year. And his family stated that their visit was normal and that James didn't act out of the ordinary whatsoever. The bus driver remembers James greeting him as he boarded and everything seemed normal. The other 15 passengers on the bus remembered seeing James and also didn't note anything unusual about him or his demeanor. 
James went to the very back of the bus and sat down in a window seat. He set his items down in the seat next to him, and they were off. I've read varying details about the length of time that this journey took, because like in today's time in a typical car, it's like a three-hour drive. But this is the 1940s, and it's a large bus making several stops, and it's winter, so it's been reported that the journey was supposed to be like an eight-hour bus ride. When the bus arrived in Bennington, which was the final stop, James was gone. His seat was empty, but his personal belongings were still in the seat next to his, including his winter coat, which is very important to note because, again, it's December in Vermont where the average temps are in the 20s and 30s, and that night in particular was especially snowy. Several people, including the bus driver, remember seeing James sound asleep in his seat after the bus departed the stop just before Bennington. The route from Arlington to Bennington is quite literally shouldered against Glastonbury Mountain. The bus did not make any stops between Arlington and Bennington, and the only exit was at the front of the bus next to the driver anyways. So there was literally no logical explanation for where he could have gone and how he could have gotten off the bus without a single person noticing. It seemed like he just vanished into thin air while sleeping in his seat. 73 years later, what happened to James Tetford is still one of the most baffling mysteries of the area and certainly one of the most baffling that I've ever heard of because he literally just vanished on a crowded bus. Less than a year later, on October 12, 1950, eight-year-old Paul Jepson threw on a red coat and jumped into the truck with his mom. They made the short drive to where the pigs were located on their property, which was a farm that ran alongside Glastonbury Mountain. Paul stayed in the car while his mom got out to feed the pigs, and when she was done, she got back in the truck to find that Paul was gone. She hadn't been far from the truck at any point, and yet she didn't see or hear him wander off. Given that this is a missing child, a huge search takes place immediately using several different law enforcement agencies from neighboring states. Bloodhounds actually track Paul's scent to the nearby highway where they abruptly lose it. So many people believe that Paul simply wandered off the way that kids do, and perhaps he was kidnapped on the highway. However, this is the same highway that James Tetford vanished on, and Paul's property was squarely halfway between Arlington and Bennington, which is also the general area that we know James vanished. And the fact that he was wearing a red coat is eerily similar to Paula, the second person to disappear. And like Paula, it's also what made his sudden disappearance so unsettling. Between the distance that she was from the truck and the short time she was away from it, his mom should have been able to spot him very quickly, regardless of how far he had wandered from the truck. And yet she saw nothing. No footprints, no red jacket in any direction, despite how open and vast the whole area was. Like the others before him, it's been 72 years and Paul Jepson's disappearance is still a mystery. So unlike the others who disappeared between like one and three years apart from each other, our final disappearance happened only 16 days after Paul vanished. On October 28th, 53-year-old Frida Langer was camping with several family members on Glastonbury Mountain. She and her cousin Herbert Elsner went for a hike along the Long Trail Path while everyone else chose to stay back. They had only walked for a few minutes when Frida accidentally slipped and fell into a stream soaking her shoes in her pants. They were close enough to the campsite that she told her cousin to wait there and she would quickly run back to change. She should have only been gone for maybe 10 minutes or so, 
But after almost an hour, her cousin gives up and goes back to the camp, only to discover no one had seen Frida since they'd left for the hike earlier. Herbert had literally retraced the short distance that he and Frida had traveled before she had soaked herself, and yet there had been no sign of her whatsoever. Everyone jumps up and starts looking for her. Someone contacts park rangers, and soon the entire area is being heavily scoured. No one found any trace of her. 300 volunteers searched the surrounding areas for two weeks straight, and yet they found nothing. And then seven months later, Frida's body was discovered three and a half miles from the spot that she had been last seen in a field that had been heavily searched immediately after her disappearance. It appeared as though her body had been left in the elements during all that time, so a cause of death was never determined. Some people don't associate Frida with the others because her body was the only one recovered, but given that she disappeared in the same vicinity as the others did, I think it's worth including her story with all of them. Now we've got two sort of like half stories that are much more present day than the five that we just heard about. The first one came in 2008. A music composition teacher at Bennington College named Robert Singley regularly hiked his favorite trail on Glastonbury Mountain. He knew the trail well and walking along it by himself was his favorite way to compose new music. He literally did this all the time. And when he was ready to turn around and head back to his car, he suddenly became tingly and confused. He started looking around and didn't know where he was. But he hadn't veered off from the path whatsoever, so it was really disorienting. All he'd done was turn around to retrace his steps back to his car, but now he didn't recognize his surroundings, and this wasn't the path that he normally took. But you know, like the logical part of the brain kicks in, and he's like, well, I know what direction I came from, so I'll just keep walking back there, and eventually I'll probably get to my car. He tracks how far he's walked, and after five miles, he knows that he should have reached his car by now but he still doesn't recognize where he is. And then suddenly, the sun is gone and a thick fog rolls in. He can't see anything around him and he realizes this has caused him to veer off of the path altogether and now he's completely lost in the woods. He can't really see anything anyways, but he can feel hypothermia settling in, so he looks for a good place to shelter where he could try to maybe build a small fire. He gets to the base of a large maple tree and he starts gathering chunks of wood. But then he realizes all the wood he's gathered in his arms aren't even pieces of wood. They're large animal bones. After what feels like hours, he's gathered enough twigs and branches to create a tiny flame and then he just huddles in. The following day, a park ranger rescued him. It turned out Despite only walking in one direction during the whole hike and then turning around and retracing his steps back to his car, Robert had somehow walked seven miles in the wrong direction. He was totally fine. He had avoided hypothermia, but he was thoroughly spooked. Nothing like this had ever happened to him, much less on a trail that he was so familiar with. He believes that he was sucked through some sort of a time-space continuum, and even though it was scary and he could have died... He ultimately walked away believing that what he experienced was magical and life-affirming. Our second more present-day half-experience came in 2015 when a guy named Chad Abramovich and a few friends decided to explore Glastonbury Mountain. Chad was fascinated with the area and they figured that, you know, in a group of people in the middle of a hot summer day, 
nothing would happen, right? They've barely begun exploring when all of a sudden it's dark and cloudy and a heavy rain hits. The wind and rain was so intense that they were all shocked that it had snuck up on them because it was just so loud and powerful. It was clear blue skies just moments ago and then suddenly they are in a thunderstorm that was so extreme they ran for the truck and took off back to the nearest town out of fear that the trail would wash away and they would be stranded. So, you know, a sudden summer thunderstorm isn't that wild or uncommon. So they weren't necessarily spooked by that. They were just happy to have gotten out as quickly as they did because they could have been really hurt. But as they're entering the town of Arlington and looking around, they're kind of surprised that everything is as dry as can be and there aren't any rain clouds. And when they mentioned it to some of the folks back in town, this is when they got spooked because no one had noticed a storm or clouds for that matter, much less something of the magnitude that that, that these guys had described. Chad says that to this day, they can't explain it. So as you can imagine, there are a hundred million theories out there on what could have happened to the people who went missing. Some believe there was a serial killer who got Mitty and Paula and little Paul and then Frida. Some people believe there's like a Bigfoot-like creature that lives on Glastonbury Mountain who's responsible for their disappearances. But neither of those options explains what the hell happened to James on the bus. Some people believe aliens got them all because over the years there have been reports of like strange lights floating in the sky and some reports of saucer-shaped crafts flying over the mountain. But most believe in the idea that Glastonbury Mountain is some kind of a vortex where when entering it, you become disoriented and then enter into another dimension, never returning again. And regardless of which theory resonates with you, if any of them, no one can argue how puzzling this all is. And I am definitely not going anywhere near this place. No, I mean, there's a little bit of me that's like, oh, <laughs> what? What if? Yeah. But like, <laughs> I'm not going to do it. But like, I am one of the 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 crazies that's like, I'm kind of, my interest is piqued. What? Yeah, I don't know. It's like I can see, it's kind of like ghost hunters where it's like I can see the draw of like something so crazy and mind-blowing wanting to see it for yourself. I do get that, but I'm also a sissy, so you don't need to worry about that. I don't feel like it's the same as Ghostbusters because if you like, if you're going to go into a haunted house to see if you experience anything, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if that house notoriously, like you enter and you just never come back out, you just vanish inside of it. I have no interest in that. It's a logical way of looking at it. I'm so curious if there's like a selection process in this vortex, like because it seems like it's a popular place to visit. Like there's a lot of people going. Yeah. And the fact that so few people, but enough for it to be substantiated, obviously, but so few people, it would make me question why them of all of the people. Yeah. I mean, it could be that they were alone. That's true. Well, wasn't the one guy at the end um, with a big group? He was with a big group, but like all that happened to them was that uh, this intense storm just Weather came out change. of nowhere. That's true. Okay. That's very, very true. But everybody else, like they all were technically alone or out of somebody's sight all of a sudden and then boom, they were gone. I, I vote the vortex because I believe that there is the possibility of another dimension existing or coexisting, obviously. And that they could be living in another dimension currently. Hell yeah. I totally believe that. I also believe in aliens. I do too. So, but I, I, for this particular one, I vote vortex. Yeah. (laughs) I think if like old native American tribes are like, this is a cursed land. You disappear when you enter this mountain. You listen. I believe you. Yeah. You listen to those people. (laughs) 
Well, thanks for sharing. I like that it was a little bit different. Yeah, it was a little bit spooky. I want more spooky stories. All right, maybe maybe we will. Maybe I'll cover one for uh, for for Friday. Okay. Okay. Cool. <laughs> good, right. good for me. All right, so <laughs> good what do you, for you. What do you have today? So today I'm covering the story of Afton Burton. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 Afton Elaine Burton was born in 1988 in the tiny one-stop sign town of Bunker Hill, Illinois. Life in Bunker Hill was slow and mundane and had a population of approximately 1,800 people. Afton had always dreamed of leaving her hometown and creating a bigger and more exciting life for herself. One day in 2007, at the age of 19, she decided to make the move. She saved up money working in a retirement home kitchen, and with $2,000 in her pocket, she made her way to Corcoran, California. Uh, where is that? <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't ask. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I already did. It's like, you already forgot. <laughs> of course I have. Corcoran, California. It's like, uh, I know it's like inland California. This is so great because it gives you like places that's close to, and I haven't heard of any of the places that's <laughs> close to. And I'm like, oh, so it's 17 miles south of Hanford, but it's in Kings County, California, which when you look at a map looks pretty in the middle of the state. Oh, so yeah, the central California is just sort of farmland. It says it's the farming capital of California. So you were spot on with that. Yeah. Moving from one small town to another felt like an odd choice. But, yeah. <laughs> but Afton was dead set on one thing. She wanted to marry the most famous guy in the world. That man was Charles Manson. And he was serving his life sentence at Corcoran State Prison. Ew. I ew. Know, I ew, know. It's all bad. Ew. ew. What year is this again? How old is this check? So this is in 2007. Oh, my so God. So he's old, old now. Old, old. And we all know exactly what he's guilty of. Exactly. And, like, I doubt anyone listening to this doesn't know who that is. But if you don't, he is a cult leader who, with the help of his followers horrifically murdered seven people, including Sharon Tate, who was eight months pregnant at the time. Afton first became intrigued by infamous murderer Charles Manson when she read his environmental philosophy, Air, Trees, Water, and Animals, at the age of 16. She was incredibly attracted to his strong conviction and appreciation for nature. In her head, she believed his love for the planet canceled out all of the horrific things that he had done. In fact, she strongly believes that Charles Manson is not an evil man whatsoever, and that he was falsely imprisoned. <laughs> I'm so glad that she's not in charge. Those are my thoughts exactly. Of like anything. Of anything, really. Afton was completely enamored with him, and she started writing him letters at the age of 17. He was 80 years old at the time. For two years, they communicated through phone calls and letters before she made the move to be closer to him. She believed that being with him would transform her life. Yeah, like a little old, like as in... Like like in a bad way. Like in a really bad way. People are transforming stuff all the time. It doesn't mean it's good. <laughs> During an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, she was questioned about her love and dedication to Manson. She said, quote, Yeah, well, people can think I'm crazy, but they don't know. This is what's right for me. This is what I was born for. I can't help but think that if you think you're put on this planet to be someone's girlfriend, then you need to, you need to get therapy. Yeah. And specifically yeah. his girlfriend. But yeah. When Afton was questioned about Manson's use of manipulation, she replied with, the only thing that he's trying to manipulate people into doing is planting trees and cleaning up the earth. He genuinely cares about that. He's nice to everyone. I've never seen, I know it's, it hurts. I've never seen him try to be manipulative. I've never seen any of that. And I guess she didn't find it strange and manipulative when he convinced her to carve an X into her forehead the way that he had done with his really cold members. 
Are you for real? She actually did that? She legitimately did it. Afton frequently visited Manson while he served his life sentence. On weekends, she would spend up to five hours a day with him. Afton now went by Manson's nickname for her, Star. Charles received money and presents regularly from fans, and Star helped him manage everything. She made updates to MansonDirect.com so that people could follow along on his aging and health. She ran a website called Release Manson Now, which advocated for his innocence. At some point, the couple decided that they wanted to get married. Star believed that this was necessary for a multitude of reasons, including the fact that she wanted to help work on his case, but she wasn't privy to some of the restricted information because she wasn't legally family. Star's family said that even though he would never be allowed in their home, they were supportive of whatever made their daughter happy. In fact, Star's mother, Melissa, believes that Manson has been very good to her and they're very much in love. And I laughed when I read that because it's like, he's serving life in prison. Like, what do you mean? Like, he can't come over. Yeah. <laughs> what? And how is he good to her? Like, I don't understand. I don't, how is I mean, he good to her and good for her? It's just insane. Manson and Star acquired a marriage license, but in February of 2015, the license expired. There were multiple versions of what stopped them from marrying. According to Afton's family, the prison was completely against the marriage and did everything they could to keep them apart. The couple would get the wedding on the books and then would have to reschedule because Manson was held in solitary confinement. And when okay, you're, hey, that's his doing, not the prisons. And when you're in solitary, you're not granted phone calls or you know visitation and or weddings. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> or hence, marriages. Hence the word solitary. A rumor arose that Star was simply marrying Manson so that she could obtain his remains and use it as a tourist attraction after his death. Ew. Manson supposedly caught wind of his fiance's intentions when Star requested that he sign the legal documents turning his remains over to her. Apparently, Star and her friend Craig Hammond planned on displaying his body in a glass crypt, and then they'd charge people money to come see it. Okay, so is she actually crazy or is she a go-getter? Or is she a con man? We'll discuss later. (laughs) I called her a go-getter and you called her a con man. Same thing. (laughs) Manson realized that he was being played for a fool and their relationship was built on lies. Even though he knew Star was using him for fame and fortune, he decided to play along. He figured that if he kept dangling the carrot of signing those papers, he could continue to reap the benefits that went along with dating her. Star and her friend Craig Hammond were generous with gifts and brought him toiletries that weren't offered in prison. So Manson conned the con artists and strung them along. Not only was Manson disgusted by his fiance's lies, he thought her idea was simply stupid. In his mind, he was never going to die. So holding out for his remains would be impossible. <laughs> stupid girl, I can't die. <laughs> it's just like the blind leading the blind. It's just idiots attracting idiots. You are what you attract or you attract what you are. <laughs> isn't, isn't it the same thing what you just said? You are what you attract. Yeah. You, oh, yeah. I just the saying. Are, I'm known for fucking up sayings. You are know? you? Yeah. Yes, I'm known. I'm, <laughs> I'm infamous for it, Ashley. <laughs> he never gave her permission to display his corpse, and he never ended up marrying Star. I'm sure that he would be the most shocked to hear this, but Charles Manson died on November 19th, 2017 at the age of 83. <laughs> <laughs> he was shocked. He was blown away. <laughs> Even though Afton, a.k.a. Star, never got to marry Manson, She said that she always considered herself his wife and believed it was a role she was born to fulfill. And that is the bizarre story of Charles Manson's almost third wife, Afton Burton. Wow. 
I think she has to be crazy for coming up with the concept. I think there's other ways of making money and like being Charles Manson's third wife and then displaying his body in a crypt is an insane idea. So I think regardless of why she was doing any of it, she was doing it because of the crazy. Well, yeah, but I mean, I just got to admire the long con, the long con and the commitment to the long con. She moved to Corcoran. That doesn't sound like a great place to live. No, literally no. No. And she's, and she's giving him gifts and she's carving things under her forehead. That's dedication. Yeah, it really is. All just to not get a job. All to just not work. <laughs> 19 year olds. No one wants to work these days. Well, your story is quite different from mine. but It was, but that's the magic of Wednesdays. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's true. Get a little bit of everything. All right. Well, see you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Love, Love you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> if you enjoy this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. To view detailed source material, as well as content from today, please visit us on Instagram and TikTok at Shorty's Podcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Shorty's Podcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Ana Katarina.